0: Open your Bibles, if you would. Let's get serious now. Mark chapter 7. I wonder what the Lord was thinking when he watched that whole exchange transpire. (laughs) Our our passage this morning, and for our guests, we've been in Mark for quite a while, is really, um, I would describe it as intriguing. Intriguing. It's an intriguing passage. Last week, it it was challenging, but for completely different reasons. If you were here with us last week, you know that Jesus, having arrived in the area of Tyre, or Tiros, uh, in what is now Lebanon, uh, was ministering to a woman whose daughter was possessed of an unclean spirit. And the exchange between them, if, if you're familiar with it at all, if you were here last week, is really challenging because this is the woman to whom Jesus said, she being a Gentile, that it's not fit to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And again, I can't speak for anybody else, but the first time I read that, it was, you must be kidding me. Is Jesus actually like a bigot? How can he be so heartless? And what we discovered as we walked through that passage, and we did it by comparing that woman in her approach to Jesus with the woman with the issue of blood, who, although legally she couldn't touch Jesus, nevertheless because of her great faith in his essential goodness, pressed through the crowd and touched his garment, this woman kept holding back, kept holding back. She spent most of the discourse at a distance. And what my, my hypothesis is, if you will, is that the reason Jesus challenged her the way he did was to help her actually identify and bring out into the open those boundaries that stood between them. There was a strong racial divide, an ethnic divide, a DNA divide, a gender divide, and Jesus was drawing her through all those by identifying them so it would be no question that they were no longer boundaries, that she could approach the Savior freely and openly. Well, this morning, the the, the passage is equally challenging, not because it's controversial in any way, uh, because it's simply kind of hard to understand. And unfortunately, our translations don't necessarily help. You know, we have really good translations, don't get me wrong. We have great translations of scripture, um, but they're all just that, translations. And You know, you hear the expression, something gets lost in translation. Well, sometimes things get added in translation, too. And that's just because they're translations. It's not a commentary on whether they're good or bad. So, again, this is a passage where the translations are not always helpful. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But Mark chapter 7, beginning uh, in verse 31. And again, he went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders to, not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He made even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Father, as we look at it this morning, we would hear from you. We would see, Father, the truth you have for us that we need, Lord, in our lives each day. We ask that. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's the deal? We have a person, man, could be a boy, um, who is brought to Jesus. We don't know much, anything about him, but he's brought to Jesus with both deafness and a severe speech impediment. That's clear. But Jesus' methodology is unusual, to say the least. And um, I mean, the fingers and the ears, we can get that. But everything after that is kind of, I don't know, vague. Hard to exactly pin down what happened. But despite that, despite our our inability to pin down exactly what happened, there is truth there that is highly significant and incredibly relevant to our lives. And that's what we're going to try to to see this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to first, again, make sure we have the setting correct, make sure we have the, the context set so we see the passage in its context, and then consider exactly what we have in front of us, both in terms of what is done and what is said. Sometimes we only get one of those, both what is done and what is said. And finally, we can ask the question, exactly what does it mean and how does it speak to us? So um, what we're going to find this morning, I would suggest, is in addition to the obvious compassion of our Lord, the extraordinary compassion of our Lord, uh, his absolute authority over the human condition. And we're going to see those linked, his humanity and his deity, And that as we see those things linked together, the linking of his compassion, his humanity, his power, his deity, um, something that we can put a tremendous amount of confidence in. There's a reason we have the confidence that we have in our Lord. And it's in that connection between the completely human and the completely divine that is our Lord. Confidence-building passage for us. So let's talk first about the setting. I would suggest afterwards, I thought about putting it up, I didn't know that would be helpful, Uh, take time after service to look in your Bible or if you have to Google it, at a map of this journey that Jesus is making. Uh, he's already left Israel on go- and gone north to Tyre, or you may say Tiros, uh, that's in southern Lebanon, on the coast. That's what we saw last week. He did so in an attempt to get away from the crowds, try to get some downtime. If I sound like a broken record, that's because he's been trying to do that since the middle of the last chapter, chapter 6, trying to get this time with just his disciples. I'm starting to think the reason that Jesus made these long journeys is because probably Probably when they were walking was the only alone time he got. Because whenever he got to where he was going, there was a crowd. Or there was somebody waiting for them. So last week we saw how he had traveled north into Lebanon. Now this passage, this portion of scripture, he's going to go even farther north to the town of Sidon. Which is halfway to Beirut. That's how far he's walking. Remember, they're walking all this way. And then he's going to from there turn east and travel inland. Some scholars think as far as Damascus. And he will then turn south, I'm doing it with my perspective, not yours, he will go east and then south to somewhere in what is called the Decapolis, which is is a collection of ten cities, that's what the word means, ten cities, that were semi-autonomous under the Roman government. These ten cities, Damascus was one, that had pretty well behaved themselves as far as the Romans were concerned, so they were given a lot of autonomy, they kind of ran their own affairs. And it expressed this large area in what is now Syria and Jordan. Largely Gentile, primarily Gentile. And Jesus is moving through this area. And this whole journey is going to amount to almost 100 miles on foot. All Jesus trying to get some away time with the disciples. Because he has stuff he has to share with them. Uh, The Decapolis was Hellenistic. Which meant not necessarily Greek in ethnicity or DNA. But in their culture. Greek language, Greek thinking, Greek deities, all that good stuff, you know. And so and not, not Jewish. And not necessarily welcome or open to Jews, which is why Jesus could go there expecting, uh, if nothing else, at least some anonymity. Nobody's going to know him. That, that's the hope. And, of course, it doesn't work. doesn't work. As soon as Jesus uh, gets where he's going, he's greeted by need need for ministry. So let's look at what happens and what's said. Unfortunately, again, a case where sometimes the translations don't always help. Mark 31 talks about Jesus' travel. And I I don't want to miss those first two words where it says, and again, like, again, like, he's walking again, he's traveling again, he's still trying to get away, okay? He's walking again, and he moves on in this circle that I've already described. Um, And when he gets... We're not told exactly where, somewhere in the Decapolis that he's headed to. uh, He's met by a bunch of people, they're not identified, and they bring to him a man, uh, not identified by name or ethnicity, any of that. What he's identified by is his need, his deafness and his inability to speak. He was literally deaf, and he spoke with difficulty. Now there's our clue that there's something kind of unusual going on here, because this is not the usual word for the inability to speak. In antiquity, at least in the Greek language, the word for deafness and the word for the inability to speak were the same word because the two were usually connected. If you were deaf, you probably wouldn't be able to speak. And if you couldn't speak, the reasonable expectation was it was because of deafness. So the same word is used, but that's not here. Mark uses a rather unusual word that stresses the fact the man could speak, but it was with difficulty. He could not be understood, right? It was, it was difficult to make a sound, difficult to be understood. Most scholars see in that evidence that he probably wasn't born with this condition. This is probably something that had developed over time. And that may be a clue that helps us as we look through the passage, right? Um, the request is also unusual. They asked that Jesus would just lay his hand on him. Now, the need is pretty obvious, right? The guy is deaf and can't speak. Uh, this would suggest that, again, may have been a Gentile crowd. Because the the willingness to not ask too much, not press in too close, recognize again those barriers, right? So they asked that he would lay his hand on him. Verse 33 is where it gets interesting for us. Verse 33, Jesus takes the man aside. Now, we're not told why. Um, Scholars suggest two possibilities, or maybe both. One is out of compassion. Uh, he wants to draw the man away from the crowd. He's not drawing as much attention, be able to keep it you know, more comfortable for the man. The other, which is equally possible, is that Jesus is still trying to keep things on the down low. Now, in our minds, when you look at all the things Jesus had done, you know, he would do, all the amazing miracles, we wouldn't necessarily think that just curing somebody of deafness and inability to speak would draw that much attention, but that's not true. If you look, for example, through the Old Testament, you don't find that miracle. And in the summary of what happens, at the end of the chapter, the people proclaim, even he makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. These would have been seen as incredible things. So Jesus is perhaps withdrawing in order to again try not to draw too much attention to himself. He's really desperate not to draw all this attention to himself, right? So he takes the man aside, and then he touches the man, putting his fingers inside his ears. Just like this. This is the Based on, on the text, this is the clearest part of the whole miracle. After this, it gets a little fuzzy. But this is very clear. Jesus took the man off by himself and stuck his fingers in the guy's ear, right? And then we read that spitting, he touched his tongue. And some translations read with the saliva. And that's where we really need to be careful because I'm just curious by a show of heads. How many of you have a translation that has that? He touched his tongue with the saliva. I don't know how to break the news to I can't find that in any manuscript. And, and the, the study Bible that, that I use lists other manuscripts that like are weird or off, as well as ones that are close. It tries to give a spectrum of, I can't find that anywhere. I have no explanation for how it got in the text. It's in some translations other translations don't have it and the translations that have what we call like marginal notes they don't I don't know where that came from except that and this is the challenge of translation and this is not an indictment of the translation translation if you've had any experience at all maybe you've been in a conversation where you know a visitor from and you and you knew the common language and you had the role to, it is exhausting And it's not easy because languages don't just match word for word. They don't just match piece for piece. And as a translator, you have to draw conclusions. And as a translator, you have to supply some things. So it's not an indictment of the translation. It's just to say that that addition of Jesus touching the man's tongue with the saliva isn't actually in the text, right? In fact, this is really going to make it fun. We can't even say with absolute certainty... Who did the spitting look at the text carefully it does not say jesus is the one who spit it's entirely possible the other guy spit now you say well where'd that come from i will tell you where that came from because i was well outside my area of expertise in this matter um before we established a theology of spitting I thought it might help to talk to somebody that knows a little bit more about, like, anatomy and that kind of stuff. Because the part about him touching the ears is clear. But everything after that is like, okay, who spit where and who spit on who and who touched who where? It's, kind of, it's, not, it's, not, it's not perfectly clear. I learned something from a person who I trust. Um, I hope that after we're done, I'm, my trust is seen to be justified. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Um, in the point of the jaw, on both sides, there's glands, three, three glands in pairs, and if I'm off, I apologize, this is my best recollection, which I've also researched, but there's three glands on both sides of the, the, the here, right at the bottom of the ear, that are related to digestion. Okay, And one of these glands, if you push on it just right, will make a person spit involuntarily, like Now, that's what I got from a reliable source. Um, I have been told that this is an especial concern for dentists because they can, you know, can spit on when they don't intend to be. So that's. But there's these glands that are involved with digestion. Now, you know that actually is not really relevant. What is relevant is if a tumor develops in one of those glands. This is where I think it gets very critical. If a tumor develops in one of those glands on either side, that tumor can affect both speech and hearing. So. I would suggest that that is in all likelihood what had happened to this person. Born with the ability to speak in here, through the development of a tumor, had lost that, hence his ability to speak, but not very well. Jesus touching him was not like some sort of magic. I would suggest it was really no different than when you or I are perhaps healing from somebody that has like a bad shoulder. We put our hand on their shoulder. It's just it's a point of human contact right? There's nothing magic in it. Uh, Again, I don't think there's anything magic that happened. I know there's nothing magic that happened when Jesus touched the man in his ears. What we see, however, is whatever was, here's the point, here's the point. Whatever was wrong with this guy, Jesus knew it. Absolutely. And he knew absolutely what to do, and he did it. Jesus knew what to do, and he did it. That's what happened. Now, verse 34 transitions more to what is said. And frankly, I think there's a lot more significant truth in verse 34 that speaks it speaks to us incredibly. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ef which means be opened." As far as I'm concerned, this verse is the whole thing. This verse is the whole thing. It starts with Jesus looking up into heaven. He's exhausted. He's spent. He's desperate for time with his disciples to teach him the things he needs to transition to them or transfer to them before he leaves. He wants downtime. He doesn't want ministry time, yet he's confronted by ministry again. So his first response when he's called upon to minister is to look to his father. Father. That was Jesus' pattern in prayer. In the garden, he said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. What did he tell us about prayer? Pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. Now, there's nothing, pro- nothing wrong with praying to Jesus. I pray to Jesus all the time. Nothing wrong with calling on the Spirit of God. Nothing wrong with that. But the base level of our prayer in our greatest need should be directed to the Father who loved us so and is the author of our salvation. Jesus expressed his need for that, just as we needed. And in a moment of, I would suggest, desperation, exhaustion, frustration, weakness physically, they just finished a hundred-mile hike, more or less. He's exhausted. But when confronted with need, he looks to his father. That's the first thing. The very things he's been trying to avoid, ministry, crowded environment, being asked to do the exact opposite of what he's trying to owe it, he starts by looking to his father. Second, he offers this deep, heavy sigh. Now, that's where I think if we just stop for a moment and think about who we're talking about, you know, we have this picture of Jesus, he's like, the son of God, walks on water, raises the dead, you know, all of this cool stuff. How does how do you get him to the place where he just like, oh, that's the kind of sigh we're talking about. The word that is used is the word stenazo, which comes from steno, which can be translated by the word straight. That's either word straight, the S-T-R-A-I-T, straight, or the S-T-R-I-G-H-T, straight, right? Steno, it's where we get our word stenography from. So you can remember that if you want. It means that Jesus is having this feeling of being compressed in by circumstances and situations and what he wants to do and where he thinks he needs to go and what he needs to be. And circumstances are making that harder and harder and harder. Boy, don't we know that? we got stuff to do and not enough time to do it in. And responsibilities are crowding out what time we do have. And we've got relations that are are pressing in and family demands. And it seems that no matter what we're trying to do, everything presses in to make it impossible. And what do we do? We sometimes just... I'm sure I'm not the only one. And Jesus... At this moment, looking up to his father, goes, "Oh, I know it's not a real divine picture, right? It's not the picture you normally have of Jesus, right? The, oh, but that's where he's at. So he looks up to heaven with this incredible sigh. He's taxed to the limit. That's the point, right? It's an expression of his frustration. It's the limitations of humanity pressing him. It's this incredibly human thing to do. And what we see in the passage is Jesus expressing that degree of frustration, that degree of exhaustion, that disappointment that is so very common to humanity. But at the exact same moment... He rises above his humanity in a compassion that causes him to rise above his own needs. As much as he wants one thing and as much as meeting this person's needs is going to send him exactly in the opposite direction because he knows what's going to happen, word's going to spread, and the next thing you know, boom, more crowds. He rises above his exhaustion, his frustration, all of that stuff. He rises above his own wants and needs to minister to a hurting person. And so, driven by a compassion beyond mere humanity, he says, Ephata, be opened. Now, everything to this point is expressing humanity, right? And then he gives an order, a order of, of divine origin that only divinity can give. Be, oh, it's a command. It's a command. Now, you or I can look at a person with an ailment, and we can give them all kinds of orders. Doesn't matter how good we are, how spiritual we are, how talented we are. You got a person that can't do something, you tell them, they're no, not going to do it. But because of his divinity, he commands the man. He commands the man's mouth, his capacity for hearing and speech to be opened. In a heartbeat, he goes from an expression of humanity to an expression of divinity and only divinity. He gives the command, be open, and the person's mouth is open. Verse 35, the man's ears were open. His tongue is freed of its impediment. He speaks plainly, and he speaks correctly. The word that is used meant he, spe- he spoke correctly. So whatever period of time this had been c- the condition that he was in, when Jesus healed healed him completely and instantly. His speech was clear. mark 36 and 37 mark returns to the issue of um, jesus trying to resist his increasing fame and notoriety tells him don't tell anybody and of course what happens some suggest jesus is using like reverse psychology like he wants people to go tell him so no the whole pattern of the last two chapters is jesus trying to get away from all of this fame and notoriety don't tell people about it, but that's exactly what they do. Verse 37, they were utterly astonished. Again, this is a huge miracle. Huge. He's done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So what, what do we get from this? Well, like a lot of people already talked about, his humanity, even in his weakness, his exhaustion, his frustration, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Um, we don't want to attach that just to the whole sin thing, right? Like Jesus was tempted to sin like everybody didn't sin, which is true. But it says he sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses. Most of you know that word sympathy means to enter into the suffering of another person all of our frustration, all of our anxiety, all of our weakness, all of our trials, all of our everything he can relate to because he's experienced it. Isaiah said of the Messiah, he took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. He literally picked up and carried the sum of human weakness. So he knows. Jesus knows experientially what it is to be human. What it is to be weak. What it is to be frustrated. What it is to feel incapable, inadequate. Can we wrap our brains around that? Jesus knowing what it is to feel inadequate. All of our infirmities. And at the same moment, this speaks of his deity. He could speak with complete authority. His commands were obeyed immediately. The first of these two truths gives us confidence, knowing that he understands us as we are. Jesus' understanding of humanity is perfect. The second of these truths gives us confidence, knowing that he holds all things in the palm of his hand. If he were human without being deity, well, that'd be great, he could understand, but he couldn't do anything about it. If he's divine without being human, we have no point of contact. We have no point of touch. And that is where our faith differs from so much of the world. So much of the world. That's the fate of the pagan. The pagan who sacrifices to God, or gods, whatever they may be, are effectively just a bribe. I hope you never feel when you come to God and you're asking, you have a prayer that you're trying to bribe him. That's not the basis for our approach. The basis for our approach is his humanity, his compassion. He's been there, he feels that. When the pagan offers a sacrifice, it's a bribe. You know, you can go to um, Delphi, great oracle of Delphi, great temple where the people would go to hear the oracle, get the message, right? If you ever go to Delphi, you'll notice that there's the ruins of the Temple of Apollos, which is where the oracle did their stuff, right? And then it's surrounded by all these other ruins. Those ruins are basically huge safety deposit boxes. They were you know, look, built to look like a beautiful building or a treasury. But what they were, all the different city-states in Greece, that ever, if you ever thought you had any business to do with the oracle, or you were going to need an oracle, it, they didn't come cheap. They were really expensive. You would build, you'd, you'd send people to Delphi and you'd build a, a really nice building there and you'd fill it with gold and silver. So that if you were in desperate need of an oracle, you need to know what to do. You didn't have to send the gold and silver to Delphi, it was already there. Because that's kind of dangerous, you know, traveling across you know, wild countryside with gold and silver. You just sent a rider and the gold and silver was already there. So all of the, most of what you see when you go to the ruins of Delphi isn't isn't the, or, the oracle. It's the cash box, where they had to set money aside. Was that because you know, the oracle had a hard time hearing, or because the or, No, the oracle didn't care. In their mind, oracle doesn't care whether you win or lose. Doesn't care. You got to bribe him. Or you can go to the temple of Asclepius in a, near a Pideros, beautiful, beautiful part of Greece. This is the temple where most of the healing was involved. The Scipalos, the god of healing. And um, it's very fascinating, beautiful area. When you go into the museums there, you see the strangest things though. You see all these like little amulet kind of things. And they're really weird. You see a little amulet of like a person missing a leg or a foot with a big, you know, tumor on it, all all these little figurines of people or parts of people's bodies that have the disease thing on them, right? And they're all gold and silver, right? If you wanted, you know, the god of Persepolis to heal your family member, you would take this little thing that expressed what it was so there was no questions asked, but you're bribing, because the god doesn't care. Pagan deity doesn't care, does not know you, doesn't want to know you, but if you can pay them off enough, you can manipulate them into doing what you want. That is so different. So desperately different. Not only do you not have to bribe God, you can't. We cannot buy him off with any offering. But that's okay, because we have something better. We have a familial relationship. And when I pray, I really try to never pray God. I mean, he is. That's like what he is. I say, Father. Because that's who he is to me. He is my Father, who in his great love and mercy pulled me out of darkness into his marvelous light. I thank God for the fact I'm adopted because it helps me to understand while there is no relationship at all Two people could extend so much love to me, they chose to say, I will love that child. Total act of their will. And if two people can do that, man, it's easy for God. He calls us his own, we are his children. And so when we come to, his prayer, to him in prayer, the basis of our prayer, our confidence, is that we are kin. Wow, that's wild. If God were God without humanity, there'd be no point of contact. There would be no hope, no understanding. But we come to God knowing he has, in the person of his son, experienced us. And if he got, And if he weren't God, if he was merely human, no matter how powerful, how wise, how smart, he couldn't respond, because our needs are simply too vast. The point of all this is really simple. The great confidence we have coming to our God coming to our Heavenly Father. We have confidence. And I think about the disciples, how they must have been amazed over and over and over again as they tried to process this reality that the one whom before them was both fully God and fully human as one completely capable of meeting every need they had and on the other hand completely known to them and by them. So, you know, it really doesn't matter where we are in our overall walk with the Lord. Maybe you've served the Lord for a whole long time. Maybe you're not even sure if you know him now. Or maybe you know you don't. We start where Jesus started every day with every need and every want. If it's a need in our bodies, if it's a need in our families, if it's a need in whatever, any area of life, if it's the need to enter into the relationship that we call salvation where our sins are paid for, we start by saying, father. This is what I need. This is where I'm at. I'll start the same. I'll end the same. Blessed by a loving, devoted father. So if you're in a place where you've got a need, whatever it might be, and, and you don't know where to go, that's where you go. If you need help in that, that's what Pastor Joyce and I are here for. If you've got a need and you don't know how to address it, anywhere on that spectrum, Come talk to us. We'll pray with you. And we can do that because we're in the same situation. Father, thank you for your word so much, Father. As we look at this passage of Scripture, it does, Father, present us with some things we don't fully understand. But we understand the important part, Lord. We understand that despite a state of complete and total exhaustion, frustration with his circumstances, Jesus, when called upon, responded in mercy, compassion, and power. Lord, that's so good for us to know that we are never going to call on you and hear, I'm too busy or I'm too tired. No. And we're most certainly never going to hear you say you don't care because you are our Father and the source of our hope and confidence is your Son, our Savior. Give us wisdom, Father, to walk through our days with that confidence In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.